With all that being said, let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. I'd like to ask that you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And while you're turning there, I just want to read to you a parable that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 21. Hear another parable, Jesus said. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it out to tenants. And then he went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent his servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. So they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now, I often say when I'm preaching, this verse that we just read could have its own sermon. Well, today that's what's going to happen. You see, last week Steve preached the majority of the concluding parts of Acts chapter 20. He did a phenomenal job speaking about a significant portion of that text. However, prior to his preaching, we worked it out so that I would have the opportunity to focus in on verse 28, and that is what we will do today. So I'd like to ask that you please look at your own copy of the Scriptures and look at verse 28. This is the holy and authoritative Word of God, and this is what it says. It says to you today, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Let's pray. God, I ask that today the joy of the Lord would be evident and present in the lives of Your people here, that Your overwhelming presence would be noticeable with us today, that in a unique way You would transform us, that You would convict us, that You would modify our thinking, that You would cultivate in us an understanding of what it means that You, the Father, sent Your Son to die for us. Lord, I ask that today uh, You would give particular capabilities for the hearers to hear and for the speaker to speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, before we get, begin, uh, Ace, could you just come here for one quick second? Could you just stand here so everybody can see you? He has no idea I'm bringing him here. This is, this is Asaph. This is my oldest. And uh, how old are you, Ace? Eleven. Eleven years old. I want you to know this is Ace, and I love him very much. Thank you. Can you get me a bottle of water and then take a seat? Yep. Thank you. <laughs> He's very good at that. <clears throat> We want to look at this verse that we are considering today and ask the question, what does this teach us specifically about five different categories of theology? We're going to look at what this verse teaches us about elders, what it teaches us about the Holy Spirit, what it teaches us about the Son of God, what it teaches us about God the Father, and what it teaches us about the church. And for each of these points, there's going to be a number of subpoints, and I want you to know up front This sermon is going to contain a number of theological descriptions and doctrinal positions. It's not going to be 
the simplest of sermons. It's going to be a little more dense than I typically preach, and it will require extra listening tenacity more so than usual. But I encourage you to stick with it because I think that you will find that this verse that we are exploring today contains an ocean worth of good news for you. So let's start with the beginning. What does this verse teach us about elders? This entire section of the book of Acts, this entire chapter really, serves as a field manual for elders. For today, we're just zooming on on this one verse, and therefore our focus is going to be limited to a very specific subset of things about elders. But what we want to look at are four things. First, consider that phrase, pay careful attention to yourselves. Every form of authority that the Lord has ever established in the history of mankind is capable of being corrupted. Kings, presidents, police, mayors, managers, does not matter whoever. One of the chief forms of abuse of leadership is the application of the law to your constituents, but not to yourself. When a ruler feels as though they are above the laws that they create, we refer to that person as a hypocrite. That is certainly true of the elders in the church as well. It is important to understand that elders are absolutely not perfect, they are not sinless, and they are capable of abusing their power or becoming hypocrites. If you hold them to the standard of perfection, then you deny the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in their life, you deny sanctification, and basically, in order for somebody to be qualified for eldership, they would have to be Jesus. That's not possible. However, there are high standards that are to be set forth for those who are called to care for the people of God. And we, have, we examined those qualifications very carefully and very thoroughly back in January of last year. Those sermons are called Elders Part 1 and Elders Part 2. They're on our website as January of last year in the First Timothy series. I would encourage you, if you want to know more about that and missed that, to look more carefully at the qualifications. But as far as today's text, one thing stands out, and dramatically so. There is one character quality that is given particular emphasis, and that is that elders are to consider first themselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Just like on a plane, you are told to secure your own mask before assisting with the mask of others. Elders are told, make sure your life is in order first. Paul puts it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Notice that order. It is incredibly important. Mike, Steve, uh, I want you to know, uh, and aspiring elders as well, we are called to have a watch over our own conduct. We are called to guard ourselves before even considering guarding others. It is our responsibility to lead by pointing ourselves to Christ and considering our own sin. The Lord calls us to pursue godliness and grow in grace every day because it's only when we do that that we can then pay close attention to our flock and their sanctification. The second thing that I want you to see in regard to this text, specifically pointing to elders, is the fact that elders are called to pay careful attention to the flock. 1 Peter chapter 2 clarifies this for us a little bit, because here in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, to all the flock of God. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, it clarifies the scope by saying, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. In other words, there is a boundary to the authority of the responsibility of the elders. 
They are not called to watch over all people carefully. They are not even responsible to watch over all Christians carefully. In other words, if I were to leave this church and I were to travel to another church anywhere, whether across the street or across the world, I do not have elder responsibilities in that congregation. I do not have an indelible mark of the soul. I am not an elder over those people. I am an elder here. And there is a flock that I have been called to watch, and those people are here. I am to shepherd the flock of God among us, as are the elders of this church. At our church, the way that we clarify that distinction, the way we understand that boundary, is simply through church membership. In other words, if you're not a member of the church, we love you, we want to be your friend. However, the attention of the elders and the focus of our ministry is to those who have covenanted with the church in membership. Before the Lord, those are the people, those who are members. Those are the people that we believe we will stand before God and to whom we must give an account for each one of their souls. And the calling of the elders is to pay careful attention to the flock. This imagery of shepherding a flock, that is a picture perceived in opposites. Consider that shepherds are to rule. They are the unquestioned leader of a flock, yet they are called to do so with gentleness. That's the picture of a shepherd. They are to carry a rod and a staff to protect from lions and bears and enemies, but they are also to use that for the care and the guiding and the disciplining of the sheep. And they are to lead and direct and guide through both the valley of the shadow of death and to lead into green pastures. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. The third thing that this verse teaches us here about elders is that they are to be understood to be the exact same thing as pastors. If you jump back to verse 17, you read, Now from Miletus he sent, to us, he sent us to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Who did he call? The elders of the church. Interestingly, that word there in Greek is the word presbyteros. That might sound familiar. That's where we get the word Presbyterian. This word is designed to highlight the wisdom of a person, an elder, not necessarily to highlight the age of the person. It's actually drawing on a historic function of most small towns and villages and communities throughout the ancient world. What they would do is they would pool a group of people who were considered to be wise that would be responsible for ruling with justice and with righteousness. So, for example, in the Old Testament especially, consider the book of Ruth, there's this group of people that hang out at the gate that are the elders of the city. Or even in a wicked city like Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot himself was considered one of the elders of that place. These people were considered to be the wise ones, the caretakers of that place. Uh, we also see um, in our verse today another term that is used to describe elders, and that is the word episkopos. This speaks to the authoritative aspect of the elder. That's the word that we see as overseer in our words today. He tells them that they are overseers of the flock of God. It's like a watchman on a wall. It's someone who guards them from enemies from the inside and from the out, like a skilled official who cares for the operations of the church. That is what it means to be an overseer. And we also see a third term that is used here for elder, but in our text today, it is used in the verb form. He says that elders, overseers, your job is to shepherd the flock of God. That's where we get our word 
pastor is the Greek word poimen. The word shepherd is very significant in the Bible. It's a picture that is designed to show exactly the qualifications we mentioned earlier of caring and gentleness, yet ruling with strength and wisdom. I want you to see here that the biblical model of leadership is a plurality of eldership, which means that we are to have a plurality of episkopos uh, and presbyteros and of poimen, pastors, elders, overseers. They are all the same thing, which means that we are to have a plurality of pastors. Now, this is not the way that Baptists typically, historically, have spoken of their pastors. Usually, they have one person that they call pastor, and the elders they just call elders, and the deacons they just call deacons. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as the church has the full comprehension that there is no authoritative difference between the elders. In other words, every person that we establish as an elder is called by God and voted in by the membership of this church to function as a leader of this church in equal authority to the one who is on staff. So there will be responsibilities that I will hold, and naturally I will have more awareness and more time and energy and hands-on ministry due to the fact that I am being paid full-time to carry out this calling, but the other men who serve as elders are likewise equally pastors and have dedicated themselves to that calling because the Lord has given them that authoritative rule over this church. Pastors are the same as elders. And the fourth thing that we see here in this verse that it teaches us about elders is that elders are called to love the church because God loves the church. Paul pleads with these elders to love the church of God that has first been loved by God. Not everyone is easy to love, and not all elders are easy to love, but elders are told that our calling to watch over the souls of the flock is to be done for the express reason and in consistency with the love that God has shown in purchasing them. We're going to circle back around to that in a little bit, but let's move forward to our second main question today, which is, what does this verse teach us about the Holy Spirit? Let's start by reading that text again, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In this case, the point that is being made in regards to elders is very significant when it comes to the Holy Spirit. There are two ways in which this is to be understood. First, notice it's the Lord who gives maturity to anyone in order to allow them to serve in this role. In other words, the fruit that they have displayed in their lives, those qualifications and characteristics that they have actually displayed in accordance with Titus and 1 Timothy chapter 2 that allow them to meet the criteria of being a pastor, those are all to be understood as fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. It is fruit of the Spirit. It originates from Him as its source. So although all Christians must walk in step with the Spirit, The presence of growth, the presence of becoming more like Christ, indicates that God the Spirit is at work. This means that He receives all the praise. God gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. And the man who is pursuing the position of elder receives none of the credit or glory. It is God who works in us. Now, of course, they strive for holiness, and they should receive honor in accordance with the Scriptures, but it is not to be perceived that they in and of themselves are great. It is God 
who is great. Paul wrote the people of Corinth who were proud of their particular gifts, and he said to them, for who sees anything different in you? In other words, different between you. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I think part of what Paul is getting at here when he's speaking to the elders in Ephesus is he's reminding them the Holy Spirit did this good work in you. Guys, remember, you are not in this role because of your own innate greatness. You are here because God has transformed you through the work of the Holy Spirit and made you into a new creation and has sanctified you. So it's important to see this because a good elder rules from a point of humility because they know that the only reason they can possibly hold the position that they do is because of the incomprehensible grace of God in their lives. Secondly, regarding the Holy Spirit, it means necessarily that the Word of God, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit, rather, works through the local church to display the will of God. How are elders established? Well, Scripture informs us that elders take, in, take part in establishing other elders. We see that, for example, when Paul tells Titus to establish elders in all of the churches in, Crete, uh, in Cyprus. Uh, but it's, it's also important for us to see here that the church itself takes part in the establishing of elders. It is important for you to know that the reason the qualifications are displayed to the entire congregation in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 is so that you will know who you should lay hands on, who you should pray for, who you should establish as elders. And so here at our church, we have an approval process where we begin by examining someone through the elder board, and then we move forward to a vote from the church in order to bring someone in to eldership. But there is something very important that separates that process from any other political or democratic process in the world. Because this mysterious thing is true, that the Holy Spirit works through the congregation that He has indwelt so that they might answer the question, is this person an elder? Should he be an elder of this church? So when we ask the church to vote, who makes the person an elder? According to this text, elders are established by the Holy Spirit, but it is through the work that you will do. That is why when we present someone as an elder and we say to you, the elders believe this person is a candidate that you should consider for the position of ruling over this body, we always ask you to approach this process with incredible diligence in prayer so that the Holy Spirit will give you clarity. Should I vote yes? Should I vote no? But what does Acts 20, 28 teach us about the Son of God? See, we see the Holy Spirit working in elders. We see the elders loving the church of God. But what does it teach us about the Son of God? In the year 2000, uh, let's just say it wasn't the greatest year for animation, for family animation, there was a movie that was put out called The Road to El Dorado by DreamWorks Pictures. I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen that movie. It wasn't well-liked or viewed by many people. I think it's probably one of the worst of all of the DreamWorks films ever made. But it's basically about these two swindlers from Spain who find themselves on a ship and end up in Central America in about the 15 or 1400s. And they show up over in Central America and find themselves running headlong into a tribe that they convince we are gods. 
Of course, this tribe had never seen Europeans. They didn't know what they were. And so they pretend to be gods so that this tribe will love them and worship them. But at one point in the film, there is an evil character who realizes that these swindlers are not gods. And the way he discovers it is that one of them gets hit in the face and his nose begins to bleed. And the bad guy says, gods don't bleed. Gods don't bleed. So he knew they were not God. There is a phrase in our verse today that would appear ludicrous to just about anyone from any pagan religion. Just take a moment and consider the immensity of this statement. It says, To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. If we break that down, the text is saying that God purchased the church with his own blood. Some of the most important theological truths of the gospel are wrapped up in that little phrase. Let's consider two enormously significant concepts that this teaches us about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. First, notice what this says about the deity of Christ. Sadly, ever since the first century, the church has always had to contend with the battle against uh, a rejection of the deity of Christ. There are many people, whether they be Arians from the first century or they be modern-day Arians like the Jehovah's Witnesses, there have always been those who seek to deny that Jesus is truly, holy, and eternally God. There are dozens of verses that would undermine, undermine any argument that cults like that could muster. But we need to look no further than our text today, and the reason for that is simple. The Father never shed blood for us. He's spirit. He doesn't have flesh or blood. And the same could be said of the Holy Spirit. He never shed his blood for anyone. So whose blood was spilled? Whose blood purchased the salvation of the church? It was the blood of God, according to this verse. The blood of God purchased you. What this is telling you is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is God. This verse is about the deity of Christ. But secondly, consider what this verse tells us about the humanity of Christ. You see, God is spirit, and throughout all eternity past, Jesus was spirit, but Christ has entered into his own creation. That is the incarnation. That is the mystery of Christmas, that Jesus stepped down from heavenly throne to here, come to earth, and be like us, but not just imitate us, to be us, to become one of us. He is known now as a being with two natures. He has taken on humanity, both body and soul. He is a man with two natures, being fully God and fully man. This is the glorious doctrine known as the hypostatic union, that he is 100% God and 100% man. One incredible reality of the gospel is that the second person of the Trinity, the one who was for all eternity past spirit, chose to take on an aspect of the created order onto himself for all eternity future. There are many verses that we could use to focus in on the eternality of Christ's humanity, but let's just look at one for the morning. Notice that after Jesus had already ascended and was ruling in heaven, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. According to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus continues to be 100% God, and he continues to be 100% man. That is an incredible thing to think, 
that the God of the universe became one of us forever. And what does this verse teach us about the Father? Now, you may have noticed that we ran out of text. (laughs) There's not much more to say from the words. What could we possibly say about the Father in this situation? Well, let's set our focus on two key realities that are powerfully tucked away just under the surface of this text, kind of like a vein of gold just waiting for the slightest effort to be discovered. First, consider what this tells us about the wrath of God the Father. Now, you might be asking, I don't see that anywhere in this text. Where do you, where do you see anything about the Father or wrath here? That can be answered by asking another question. If the spilled blood of Christ was a payment, if it was a purchase, to whom was that payment made? Who was Jesus paying with His own blood? Now, there are many genuine Christians who have a misconception of what it means that their sin was paid for at the cross. They don't know. Well, they know that Jesus sought them. They know Jesus bought them, but they don't understand what the transaction was or how it worked. Perhaps that's you. In fact, there are many who have a distorted notion that we were purchased by Jesus from Satan, that he owned us. He had us in prison, and therefore Jesus went to the prison and said, hey, let me get that guy out. And we, we were bought by Jesus from the devil himself. Well, thankfully, that is not what we find happening in the Scriptures. Again, there are many ways that we could examine this through the Word, but for the sake of time today, I want to show you the answer from one verse that is very clear. Notice what Paul says about the blood of Christ in its payment in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. It says, and we are justified by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. What is propitiation? That is an appeasement of God's wrath by way of a payment. In other words, God required payment for our sin, and Jesus' blood was the payment that God would accept. He would not accept anything else. The redemption that we receive could only occur through the justifying grace that we receive from God as a gift as poured out by Jesus Christ in His blood. The payment of Jesus' blood was paid to God. J.I. Packer refers to this very simply as divine self-satisfaction by way of divine self-substitution. God the Father sent Jesus to pay the debt that we have against Him. We couldn't simply just ask Him to forget and forgive the record. He couldn't just pretend like our sin never happened. If God were to do that, then God Himself would be working together with a sinner to accept sin. It would mean God would have to lower His standards for holiness, which He will never, must never, can never do. So we see in this verse, the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus to propitiate sin, to pay for sin. That is what the word purchase means. Secondly, consider what this says about the love of the Father. You see, it could be really easy for us to fixate upon the wrath of God that is powerfully stored up against sinners. And and that should be troubling to us, that our sin has warranted such eternal hostility. But Don't miss the fact that God displays wrath. He pours out wrath. He judges his enemies with wrath. But he is love. He is love. God is love. You might say, well, I don't feel like God loves me right now. Maybe your life has been difficult. Maybe you've been discouraged. Maybe you have a misunderstanding about the nature of who God is. Well, 
Please hear me today and be convinced of that. The fact that God is love should be the most joy-producing, reality-settling, life-giving, confidence-building, faith-growing, peace-providing, and hope-cultivating truths that you could ever experience in the universe. Humans are weird. We just are. There's like a million things about us that are strange. But even within the regular strangeness of who we are, there are periods of our lives that tend to be more weird than others puberty, I mean, just a bunch of times that we could look at it. It's just, life is weird. But I'm convinced that people are generally the most strange when they are young and in love. They are irrational. They are crazy. They are distracted. They, there are so many things going on that they just don't even notice because they are locked in. But one of the ways that that period of temporary insanity tends to display itself is in the way that we attempt to determine if another person really loves us. You've all seen the old cartoons, Minnie Mouse pulling the flower petals off. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Now, realistically, we're not, we're not normally that fickle. We're normally worse, just to be honest. We, we're more, more so. And what we do is we're looking for evidence We're trying to find any sign possible, like this flower. This flower is telling me whether or not this person loves me. We're looking for any sign possible. Does that girl actually care about me, or is she going to walk out of this date and never talk to me again? Does that guy really love me? Is he going to buy a ring for me? Is he going to provide for me and care for me? Or is this just going to be a short-term friendship that we forget about for the rest of our lives? What is going on here? And that is a very vulnerable position to be in. Unfortunately, that's the kind of position a lot of people think they are in with God. Perhaps your relationship with the Lord has kind of looked like that recently. You're looking around at your circumstances and you're saying, does God really love me? Does he? Well, my life is hard right now. It's difficult for me to see any love from him right now. Or maybe you look at your life and you say, well, you know, I got a raise. My kids were really good last week. My marriage has been really sweet. It's stable. And so God must love me. Or conversely, your car breaks down. You're told by your company that they're downsizing, that your job might be on the chopping block. Uh, Your dog dies. You start to question, does God love me? Circumstantial evidence is what you're searching for. Well, consider how God's love is displayed. 1 John 4, verse 9 says, In this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. It's objectively true. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates or shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no greater act of love that God could perform. There is no better way for him to prove his love. You have the objective, historic, manifested love of God on display through God the Father sending God the Son. Christian, God loves you, and exhibit A is the cross. There is no exhibit B. Which brings us to our final question for this text. What does verse 28 teach us about the church? Well, today I opened our sermon by reading to you a parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21. In that story, there were many messengers that were sent to warn the tenants. But the stakes were dramatically increased when the owner said, I'll send my son. But why? What made that final messenger more significant than all the others who came before? 
The answer to that is very simple. It's the relationship. All of those other messengers were important. None of their lives were worthless, but they were hired hands. The son was the same essence as the father. They had a bond that was different than those other messengers. It is what made this so egregious that the tenants took him, the heir, the son, and killed him. Church, I think you probably heard this a million times, maybe a billion times. Jesus loves you. God the Father loves you. Jesus died for you. Listen, I love you. I am so thankful that the Lord has permitted me to be your elder, your pastor, your shepherd. And there are so many things that I would do for you if I knew it would serve you in your spiritual growth. But you know what I would not do? I would not give you my son. I would not trade him in place of you. As much as I love you, I would not give him up for any one of you. It does not mean I do not love you. It means that the bond that I have with him, the love that I have for him, goes beyond the love and relationship that I have with you. God sent his son to die in place of sinners like you and me. In Greek, there are eight different genitive cases. I'm not going to get into a whole lot of grammar here today, but just a little bit. Stick with me. That's just a fancy way of saying there's eight different ways that the word of can be understood in Greek. The most common is just descriptive. For example, the body of sin. Well, it's just describing the body has some kind of a relationship to sin in the sense that it is made up of sin in some way. It describes it. The second most common way that the word of or this genitive is to be used is in terms of possession. We've already looked at that once this morning. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit that belongs to and can only stem forth from the Holy Spirit. It cannot have, have another origin point. But neither of those examples describe what is taking place in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when we read that word of. It is the church of God. What does that mean? What genitive case is this? Well, a simple ex answer is that it is a genitive of relationship. A good example of this can be seen in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, where it says, And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the original language, that word son does not appear in Greek. It was added later because the English translators want to make sure you understand what is taking place here because we don't just say it is James of Zebedee. That's kind of weird in our language. But that is a genitive of relationship. It is James of Zebedee, meaning it is James who has a belonging with Zebedee. It is James who is connected to Zebedee in a familial and particular way because Zebedee is his father, progenitor. In similar manner, we here in our text see that the church is relationally and familially connected to God. We are the church of God. I think the best verse in all the Bible that sums up this point is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, which says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love? What kind of love is it that we should be called children of God, and so we are? It is an adoptive love. It is a love that says, you who were not mine are mine. That is good love. Church, in a moment, we're going to join together in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Ushers, I would like to ask you to go ahead and begin coming forward and passing out the elements. 
The, the image that is being presented to us in this passage is that we are adopted children, that we are welcomed into a feast, just as we sang earlier today, once an enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. That's what we're about to do. We are about to thank him for being welcomed at his table. We are called to share in this meal by enjoying the good gift that God has given, the gift of Jesus Christ himself. And what is it that we are doing? We are remembering the fact that the God-man, Jesus Christ, purchased us at a high cost of his own body and blood. You were bought with a price. If you are not a Christian, I would ask that you refrain from partaking, as this is an ordinance for believers. I would ask that, believer, you partake in accordance with the command to remember and in theological honesty recognizing that this is not the physical body and blood of Christ. It is a memorial picture. It is an illustration of who he is. But what it teaches us, what it points us to, is incredibly important. Today I call on you to remember. That is the command we are given. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember the electing and sending love of God, the Father. Remember the humble and sacrificial love of God the Son. Remember the regenerating and sanctifying love of God the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 7 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you see what he's saying? All of these things, these old covenant sacrifices that were made, they are pictures to be a reminder to you that you're a sinner in need of a sacrifice. You are a sinner in need of God's saving work in your life. But, verse 5, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. That's not what you want, God. But there is something you want, he tells us, but a body you have prepared for me. Today, when we partake of this bread, it is to remind us that God the Father sent Jesus to take on a human form, to become one of us, so that he might give the sacrifice for us. One that was the penalty was by man, so the payment had to be by man, and Christ came in the flesh for us. There is only one atoning sacrifice that the Lord would accept. And that is the precious body of Jesus Christ. So I would ask that right now you partake of the bread together and remember Christ. We now turn our attention to the cup, the blood of Christ. Acts chapter 20 verse 28 tells us that God shed his own blood to purchase us. Hebrews 9 speaks a great deal about this blood. As the ushers are distributing 
Listen for all the links to the blood of Christ in these words. Listen to how many occasions Hebrews 9 repeats this idea. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How was your eternal redemption secured? Through the precious blood of Christ. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the, uh, the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How is your conscience purified through the blood of Christ? Brothers and sisters, that is good news for you today. And therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And here's the key. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, when you are born into this world, we are all born with one great need. We are born with the need of God's righteousness and when we fail to have that righteousness, we are in need of forgiveness. That forgiveness is available to us in no one else and in no other manner than through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The cross is evidence of his love. It's evidence that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have committed themselves to us in love so that they might redeem us from our own sin. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God is evident in us in that Christ died for us. I would like to ask you to remember, by partaking together of this reminder of his shed blood, let's partake together. Lord, we do give great thanks, for you are good, and you are love, and you have, by your grace, saved so many in this room that by your mercy you have called us to yourself, you have forgiven our sin, you have made us your children through adoption, and you have done all of this through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, I ask that all of the things we have heard today will collectively cause us to be more aware and constantly cognizant 
of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus for us. Love that cannot be separated from us. Love that has been given to us by no merit of our own. Love that is permanent and eternal. Love that is equal to the love that you have for your son. You have shared with us. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged and dramatically transformed by this love. For to see you is to love you. And to love you is to live for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.